Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come help us by your Holy Spirit now. We pray that you would make us worthy of your word. We pray that we would not just hear it, but that we would believe it and do it and live according to it. We pray, O Lord, that you might show us the sufferings of our Savior. We pray for every heart that is distant and far from you, that it might be moved close in considering the afflictions of Christ. We pray for every heart that you have won, that it might be moved onto what you have called us to. So come, we ask and pray by the help of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, Shainu and I were going to breakfast in South Philly. We went to one of our favorite spots, and there was a long wait, and so we decided to just go for a walk. And the kids were in New York visiting family, and so we started talking about the kids since they were away, and we sort of started daydreaming together about what it would be like when the kids grow up, and what it'll be like when they get married, and, and how that'll work, and what, what we sort of imagine life will be like when we get old. And so Shainu asked me sort of what my ideal would be when the kids meet who they're going to meet and they get married, what, what sort of life going to look like? And so I immediately told her, I, I said, I know exactly what my idea was going to be. We're going to live here and the kids are going to buy a house here and here and we're just going to live together like that. Sort of like if you've ever seen Everyone Loves Raymond, you know how healthy that is where the parents can just stop in at any point and I'm sure my future son-in-law and future daughter-in-law would love that, but I just imagine this ideal situation where the three of us live together and it's going to be wonderful. Right Now, Shainu laughed at me a little bit, and then she said something like, you know, what if, what if Hannah marries a missionary, right? Someone who wants to go to Africa or the Middle East. And, and I'm a mature Christian pastor, and so I immediately said to her, no way, that's not happening. And, and I said to her, you can pray for your missionary all you want, but I'm praying for somebody called to Philly. There's plenty of work to do here, thank you very much. She has no need to go to Africa or to the Middle East. She can find a church planter here in Philadelphia, get married. We can live next to each other. That's what I'd like. And then I got annoyed and I changed the subject because I'm a, I'm a mature Christian pastor. So I, I didn't think about it again, right? I didn't want to examine the sin underneath the sin or do soul care or work on the issues of my heart. I just wanted to let it be and let it lie. And I didn't think of it again until this passage we're looking at today. Because what this passage did is it sort of dug that up and resurfaced it. Because what this passage did, and I'm not fully cured, but I am struck again by the cost of following Jesus. I am struck again by the cost of serving Jesus. I am struck again by the cost of Christian mission and Christian ministry. I'm struck by the cost of mission and ministry. Now, I need you to hear right off the bat, when I say mission or ministry, I don't mean some kind of professional thing for some elite guys who get a paycheck from the church. I'm not talking pastoral ministry. I'm talking the mission and ministry that every one of you who trusts in Jesus has been called to, right? In fact, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 4 which says that God gives to the church shepherds and teachers so that they can equip the saints for the work of ministry. Don't miss that. My task, why God gives a church a pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is, that part of our task is to shape you for the task of ministry. So ministry and mission is all of our call. And that call, I'm struck again, is not a tame, is not a safe, is not a picket fence, is not a suburban, is not a middle class, is not a live out the American dream and squeeze Jesus on the side kind of call. 
I'm struck again that when Jesus called disciples, he said, Mark 8, 34 and 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus doesn't hide right from the start. If you're going to follow me, then, then I'm telling you, if you're trying to save your life and hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake and for the gospel's sake, you're actually going to find it. Jesus doesn't hide that the call to follow him is where you take up a cross as well. Put it on your back. Follow the blood-stained trail that he led to Calvary and you walk that path with him. The call that Jesus has is one filled with sacrifice and suffering and blood and sweat and tears and risk and death. That's the way Jesus called us. I heard a preacher this week tell the story about a, a Christian monk spent his whole life in a monastery in, in silence, serving God 24-7. And the monk was asked, what if you come to the end of your life and you find out there was no God after all? Right? You spent your whole life this way. What if you come to the end of your life and you find out there is no God? The monk thought for a second, and here's what he said in response. He said, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. I still would have used my life well. Right? He, he said, holiness and sacrifice and stillness are, are still beautiful in themselves. I wouldn't have, basically saying, I wouldn't have changed a thing about my life. It still would have been lived that way. Now, that sounds incredibly profound and deep. And yet I want you to hear that the Apostle Paul says the exact opposite. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 19, you can just hear it, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul didn't say, well, if there's no Jesus, my life was still perfect and I would have lived it the same exact way. Paul says, if there is no hope in Christ beyond this life, then my life should have been the biggest pity there is. Because my life makes no sense in the way that I'm living if there isn't some kind of resurrection after this. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul's saying, my life makes no sense at all. In fact, later in the chapter, in chapter 15, he's going to say, why then am I in danger every day? Why do I die every day, face beasts here and people there? Why would I go through any of that if there is no resurrection from the dead? My life makes no sense because I'm sacrificing and suffering and in danger all the time if there's no resurrection. In fact, just listen with me, if you would, Paul's brief resume and his acquaintance with suffering for Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says this about his own account. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Paul's saying, if there is no resurrection beyond the grave, 
then my life and all these dangers makes no sense at all. It's not this was a life still worth living exactly the same way. Paul's saying none of this would have made sense. In fact, if you go back to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, let me tell you what would make sense. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Paul says, we should all eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the life that makes sense. If Jesus and his call and his death and his resurrection and his cross are not true, the only life that makes sense is eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And I want you to hear this. I heard one pastor say one simple thing about that that completely opened that for me. Eat and drink is not some kind of call to excess, right? So tomorrow you're going to die, so you might as well give yourself to gluttony and drunkenness, some kind of excess. No, because a glutton and a drunkard is just as pitiful, right? To have a heart attack at 36 and die or to be in and out of rehab is just as much a pitiful life. What Paul's saying is the kind of moderation where you live a good, normal, happy life. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Meaning, if there is no resurrection, what you should aim for is a good, normal life. A good, normal, middle-class American life. Right? Paul is saying the safe, risk-free, middle-class American dream is the perfect picture of what a life without the resurrection looks like. Paul would say, looking at us, looking at so many, if he saw the American middle class, he would say, that's exactly what my life would have looked like too if I didn't believe in the resurrection. I would, I would concentrate on mo modesty and, 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 and I, I would consider, consider myself to just not excess, just the right kind to maximize pleasure in this life because this is all there is. A good, normal, happy life. But Paul says, but because I follow Jesus, my life doesn't look like that. And my ministry hasn't looked like that. And in the passage we're looking at today, in Colossians 1, 24 to 27, Paul is going to tell us what his life has looked like and what his ministry has looked like and what being on mission has looked like. Right? Colossians 1, 24 to 27. Now let me just quickly, for one second, tell you where we are in Colossians, just in case you're jumping with us. In Colossians, he started the letter, and he's writing to this young church plant, and he thanked God for the Colossians. He introduced himself. He thanked God. He prayed for the Colossians. In verses 15 to 20, he sang this wonderful hymn about Jesus. In 21 to 23, he told the Colossians, this is how all of that applies to you. So if you were here last week, you remember who we were before and who we are now after because of the gospel. And then in verse 23... He said, all of this is true if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So he says, this gospel, if you don't shift from it, this gospel that's been proclaimed everywhere and of which I've become a minister, and speaking of ministry, he now transitions to verse 24. He says, let me tell you about my ministry. Right? Speaking of ministry, let me tell you about my ministry. And in these few verses, what I want you to see is the calling, the content, and the cost of Christian mission. As you can tell, I worked hard on those C's, so you better not forget them. Right? <laughs> the calling, the content, and the cost of Christian mission and ministry. Here's what he says, 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. Now, Paul says something very confusing and difficult and puzzling in verse 24. So I'm going to skip that. We'll start at 25. I promise we'll come back to it. I'm not going to totally skip it. We'll come back to that at the end. So I want to start at verse 25. And the first thing I want you to hear is the calling of Christian ministry. Paul says, look, I I have suffered for the church of which, 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, I don't want to belabor this or spend a lot of time on this. I just want you to hear first his calling to Christian ministry. And what I want you to hear is Paul says, I'm in this mission, I'm in this ministry because of the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. That's Paul's just way of saying, I'm in Christian ministry because God called me to it. God gave me a stewardship for it. Now, that's simple, but I just want you to notice. Paul's not in Christian ministry because he graduated first in his class. He's not on mission or in Christian ministry because he was very bright in Sunday school and everyone sort of noticed something about him. Paul is simply wanting you to know that he is called to gospel ministry because a stewardship from God was entrusted to him. He was commissioned by God. God gave his gospel ministry to Paul. It's simple. And yet, Seven Mile Road, I don't want it to be lost on us, the wonder of the thought that if you belong to Jesus Christ, God has entrusted gospel ministry to you. He says, here is my precious gospel, and I'm going to entrust you to it. I'm going to commission you to it. I'm going to make you a steward of gospel ministry. Now, the best thing I have ever heard on this is by a preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And he said something that I have repeated and have never grown tired of hearing. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on his own call to ministry and mission, said this. He he thought about the prodigal son story, right? The prodigal son story is the story where Jesus says there's the two boys. The younger one wastes all his father's wealth on wine and women and wickedness, and he comes back in rags and how the father receives him. Well, Charles Spurgeon reflects on that, and here's what he says. It's a lengthy quote, but worthy of your careful attention. Don't miss a word. He says, I have sometimes thought that if I had been the father of a prodigal son, I could have forgiven him when he came home, and I hope I should have very freely done so. But I do not think I could have ever treated him in quite the same way that I treated his elder brother. I mean this. I would have had him sit at the same table, and feast on the same food. But I think that when market day came round, I would have said to my younger son, I shall not trust you with the money. I must send your elder brother to the market with that, for you might run away with it. Perhaps I would not gone so far as to say this, but I think I would have felt it, for such a son as that one would be rather suspicious for a long time. Yet see how differently God deals with us. After some of us 
who have been great sinners and he has forgiven us, he puts in trust with us the gospel and bids us go and preach it to our fellow sinners. In another sermon he says, but look what my Lord has done for me, that he would entrust the gospel to me and say, go and preach it. And then he goes on to say, look at John Bunyan. Now John Bunyan was a well-known Christian back in the day who spent years in prison for Jesus, wrote this famous book called The Pilgrim's Progress. He says, look at John Bunyan, a swearing, drinking profligate. Yet when the Lord had forgiven him, he did not say to him, now Master John, you will have to sit in the back seats all your life. You shall go to heaven. I will provide a place for you there, but I cannot make as much use of you as I can of some who have, not be, who have been kept from some of the sins you have been committed. Oh no, he is put in the front ranks of the Lord's servants. An angel's pen is given to him that he may write the pilgrim's progress, and he has the high honor of lying for nearly 13 years in prison for the truth's sake. And among all the saints, there is scarcely one who is greater than John Bunyan. Look at the Apostle Paul, too. He called himself the chief of sinners, yet his Lord and Father made him, after his conversion, such an eminent servant of Christ that he could truly write, In nothing am I behind the very chief of apostles, though I am nothing. It should not get familiar to us. We should not grow accustomed to the thought that God has entrusted to us gospel ministry. Spurgeon's saying it'd be one thing if he said, I'll forgive you and beam you right up to heaven. But it's another that he would say, not only will I forgive you, I will take the most precious thing in the universe, the gospel of my son, and I'll trust you with it. So now you go and preach and share it is a wondrous thought that Paul the murderer should be entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, commissioned for that, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you, Paul says. This is the calling to gospel ministry, to Christian mission and ministry, and all of you who are in Christ have that calling. But now then, second, what is the content of Christian ministry? We receive this gracious calling to it. What is it that we are to make known? What is the content of it? Well, Paul tells us in verse 25, of which I became a minister to make known, to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is it that Paul, having been commissioned and called by God's grace to Christian ministry, is to make known? Well, he says in verse 25, I'm to make the word of God fully known. Namely, I'm to make the mystery that's been hidden for the ages and generations, but now is revealed to the saints. I'm to make that mystery known. The mystery which is great among the Gentiles in riches and glory, and that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I have been called, and you have been called, to make the mystery of God known. Now, what is that mystery? And mystery, he says, is not just something that's unintelligible. Mystery as in hidden. 
I always think when I hear of this phrase, there's this scene in The Lord of the Rings where there's this sword that the, the king is going to wield. The sword's been broken into pieces, and once it's forged together and the king has it, finally you can do battle against the evil. And there's this intense conversation with this man, and he's having this conversation with a man named Aragon, and all of a sudden, from underneath his cloak, he pulls out this sword, and everybody is sort of taken aback by it. And, and that's sort of the same idea, that God has been hiding sort of this mystery under his cloak, but now he's revealed this mystery. And what is the mystery? The mystery is that Christ, Gentiles, is in you. This is the mystery, hidden from ages and generations, that now he's revealed to the saints to make known, this is the mystery, Christ in you. The mystery is that this God, Yahweh, who had started with Israel, is going to somehow find a way to have his salvation go to the ends of the earth so that even the non-Jews, the Gentiles, are going to be brought in. And all throughout the Old Testament, you've got sort of glimpses and pictures that God would someday pull this off. Hear me, in Isaiah there's this prophecy, right? And just listen to what God says of his servant. And this is foreshadowing Jesus. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right, the, the prophecy even back then is, I'm going to raise up a servant, and it's going to be too small a thing for him to just win back Israel. No, I'm going to make him a light to all the nations. In fact, through him, my salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. And that thing that you weren't really sure how that God was going to pull that off has now been revealed in Jesus. That through Jesus, God's salvation might now go beyond the walls of Israel to the four corners of the earth, and tell the Gentiles, you too are in. And not only that you are in, but that now Christ is in you. This is the mystery, not even just that the Gentiles are in, but that Christ will now be in the Gentiles. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Jesus and what God was going to do through Jesus and how Jesus was going to indwell us. I, I was thinking of this, and just this week, I was thinking through how did God dwell in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, there was this one spot, one piece of real estate on the entire planet where God dwelt. That was the temple in Jerusalem. And within the temple, God dwelt in one spot in that temple, which is the Holy of Holies. But I thought through how limited was the access to God. How many rules, how many specifications, how many limitations to get to where God dwelt. Right In the temple, there was this outer court called the court of the Gentiles. Meaning, if you weren't Jewish, that's as far as you got. The Gentiles could not take a step further. Beyond the court of the Gentiles was the court of women. So if you weren't a Gentile and you were Jewish but you were a woman, that's as far as you got. Beyond the court of the Gentiles and the women was the court of Israel. So if you were a Jewish man, you could go past the Gentiles and past the women and get there. But beyond that was where the priest could get. So now, if you were a Jewish man who wasn't a Gentile and wasn't a woman and wasn't just a man but was a priest, you could get there. But within the priest, you had one man once a year who could go past that into the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. So, Gentiles, women, Israel, priests... One man, once a year, gets to go in. That's 
how God dwelt. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. And then Jesus comes along. And now you get a Colossian. You get a Colossian who has worshipped Aphrodite his whole life and made sacrifices to Zeus. You get a Colossian who was sleeping with temple prostitutes because he didn't know better. You get a Colossian who was eating snail and bacon-wrapped shrimp because he didn't know the customs or the law of, of Israel. He didn't know the Ten Commandments. He didn't know who Moses was or Abraham was or Israel was. He didn't know their story. He didn't know the covenants. He didn't know the promises. He was unclean. He was uncircumcised. He was a pagan. And someone goes and tells this man about Jesus, and now God dwells in him. The God who you could access one man once a year now is going to live in a sinful, pagan, unclean, uncircumcised Colossian. This is the mystery, hidden for the ages. Christ in you. This is the hope of glory. I mean, the, the hope that you want to know if you'll have life eternal. Well, God gives you that hope even now. Christ is living in you. What, what greater guarantee could there be of glory with him then Christ is in you now. This is the mystery that Paul and we were commissioned to. And you think of that. We have been called by God's grace into God's mission so that we might tell neighbors and co-workers and classmates and friends and family. We might tell men and women who have no idea about God who don't know the first thing about the Bible or its stories, who couldn't tell you who Paul is, who have no idea who Abraham was, who don't know anything about the commandments, who don't know anything about proper living, who is a mess, whose background is a mess, whose life is a mess, and you are to go and tell them, I have the greatest news in the world. God not only wants a relationship with you, he'll live inside you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, is that a message worth telling or what? No matter what the cost, is that worth getting out? And now, then, consider what is the cost? And that's the third thing I want you to see and the last thing I want you to see. The calling to Christian ministry and the content of Christian ministry, but now what is the cost of Christian mission and ministry? What will it cost us? What did it cost Paul? Here's what he says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, if you're an attentive or careful reader, you should sort of be scratching your head and going, what on earth is Paul talking about? Right? We, we get sort of the calling to it and the content of it. What on earth is he talking about? What would Paul be saying when he's saying, I will fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You think that? What, what could Paul be saying? Something is lacking in Jesus' suffering and afflictions? And how then is Paul in his going flesh going to fill up and complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You get sort of the tension. You, you read this. I read this and go, what on earth is he saying? I will fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So let's start with what he doesn't mean. What he doesn't mean is that something was somehow lacking in Jesus' death for salvation on the cross. I want you to hear that. 
What he's not saying is that somehow something was lacking in Jesus' work on the cross for salvation. We know that because Jesus wasn't lying when he said, it is finished. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished, meaning the work of salvation, the work that God had entrusted to him to bear our sins, to bear the wrath of God, to propitiate, that word that means to bear the anger of God, that work was finished. It is finished, he said. And we know that because Jesus rose from the dead. And the resurrection is the proof that God accepted the sacrifice of his son. That he doesn't need to stay dead for sins anymore. He's alive because sin has been dealt with. So then we know that it doesn't mean that something was lacking in Jesus' death on the cross for salvation. Moreover, this word afflictions, commentators tell us it's never used in relationship to Jesus' salvation work on the cross. When, when that work is used, it's the word suffering or his blood, or his death, or his cross. Never afflictions. Moreover, I just simply want to say that Paul's not insane. Right? Paul doesn't have amnesia, where he just finished spending all this energy to talk about how sufficient Jesus was. How Jesus was lacking nothing. In fact, we said the whole message of Colossians is the sufficiency of Jesus. Right? That's what he's laboring throughout this whole letter. The Colossians have been told, Jesus is a good start, but he's not enough. And the whole letter to the Colossians is, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need because all the fullness of God dwells in Him. You lack nothing because you have Christ. So he didn't just spend all his energy to speak of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus only now to say, but he's lacking something at the cross and don't worry, I'll fill in for him. So then what is Paul saying when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, as you might be able to guess, an ocean of ink has been spilled on trying to explain what does this verse mean. As commentators go back and forth and try and interpret what it means, and, and there's no shortage of them. And yet I want to tell you one for the sake of time that I'm persuaded by, that I found most compelling. I read it from a commentator named David Garland, heard it from a sermon by a pastor named John Piper, I think one of the keys to this is if you turn left one letter, you're in the letter to the Philippians. And in Philippians, Paul is writing again, and it's a different context, but he uses some of the same words that I think are helpful uh, to understand this verse here. In Philippians, Paul is in a jail cell, and he's writing to this Philippian church. And the Philippian church is this great, young, healthy church plant. They love the apostle Paul, and they want to minister to Paul while he's in prison. In fact, what they want to do is they want to send him support and gifts and, and somehow help him out while he's there. But the problem is the entire Philippian church can't get up and go to Paul's prison cell. And so they want to send him gifts, but they can't physically go. And so this one man named Epaphroditus goes to deliver the Philippian gift to Paul. He goes, and he goes at great risk to his own life. In fact, he falls ill. He nearly dies for the sake of Christ. And then he gives this gift to Paul. And here's what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 30. He's speaking of how you should receive Epaphroditus, this good servant and soldier for the Lord. He says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And you see some of the same words. He's going to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul says, uh, receive this man because he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now what does he mean? Lacking here is not as in Paul is really ungrateful. 
uh, ungrateful because you Philippians, you sort of cheapskated me and Epaphroditus had to dip into his pockets and fill up what was lacking in your gift. That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, the only thing that was lacking was, Philippi, you couldn't all come here and physically present this gift to me. That was what was lacking. And so Epaphroditus has completed what was lacking in your gift to me. Meaning Epaphroditus has physically embodied this gift. Your physical presentation of it was lacking, but Epaphroditus has completed what was lacking on your behalf. Philippi, you gave this wonderful, generous love offering, but you weren't there to physically embody and give this gift. And so Epaphroditus has completed what was lacking in giving it to me. And the commentators, I think, rightly say that Christ in Colossians 1.24 has offered this love offering. And what is lacking is the physical presentation of this offering to the ones whom he has died for. Jesus is in heaven. And so the physical embodiment, the physical presentation of that will now be completed as his body, the church, goes and gives the gospel to the very ones that Jesus died for. Paul, in his flesh, is going to deliver and present and extend the work of Christ's afflictions by presenting to these people the very thing that Jesus died for. What is lacking then is filled up in Paul's flesh, in your flesh, in my flesh, in the body of Christ, in Jesus' body, the church. We are the physical embodiment, the physical presentation of Christ's affliction and his atoning work. We take the love offering of Jesus, shed on that cross, and bring it to classmates and neighbors and neighborhoods and cities and co-workers. And moreover, I want you to see this also, Paul says, it's in my suffering that the sufferings of Jesus are presented physically. I rejoice in my sufferings for your flesh and in my, for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Paul's saying, not only that, but God has designed that it be through my afflictions, my sacrifices, my suffering, that the suffering of Jesus might be ministered to the people for whom he has died. You think of that, Samaru. That means you're, you're getting mocked for sharing the gospel. Your inconveniences, your sacrifices, your suffering are not wasted, but rather are the very means by which God intends to communicate the sufferings and sacrifices of Jesus for the person you are ministering to. Piper, in his sermon, gave two wonderful illustrations. I'll say those and I'll close. To sort of give you a picture of Colossians 1, 24. Of what it costs us and how God works through our suffering to make his sufferings known to a world. He told the story of a man named J. Oswald Sanders, who is a missionary. A wonderful missionary. At 89, he delivered this talk. At 70, he sort of retired, and for the next 19 years, he wrote one book a year, which is, by the way, how all of us should retire at Seven Mile Road, right? right? You, you don't go out of Christian ministry. You just find new phases. You don't write books, but, but the point is when you get to 70, there is more work for you to do. You don't turn inward. That's not the call, right? At 70, you still work. And so this man wrote 19 books in 19 years from 70 to 89. At 89, he gave this address, and he told the story about a poor Indian evangelist. A man in India had come to faith. 
This man was poor, owned nothing. And so he would go from village to village telling people about the gospel. He had no shoes on his feet, so he would walk barefoot from one village to the other to tell them the gospel. And he determined to go to this very far village to let them know about Jesus. And so he started to walk. The journey was much harder and longer than he imagined. So when he finally got to this place, his feet were bloodied and blistered and just a total mess. Exhausted, he found his way into the village and he began to preach to them about Jesus. And the entire village rejected him. Laughed at him, scorned him, rejected his gospel. He was so exhausted, he went out of the town, found a tree to lie under its shade and just fell asleep. When he woke up, he was startled to see the entire village was around him. And the chief of the village was looking over him. And he was scared to death, thinking this was his end. And then the chief of the village told him that they had come to examine and inspect him. And then they saw his feet. And when they saw his feet, they concluded this must be a holy man. They thought through how difficult a journey he took to come and tell us. And they were sorry for what they did and asked him to say it again. Through his bloody, blistered feet, the afflictions of Jesus were presented to this village. And they saw Jesus' afflictions through his. That's Colossians 1.24. I'm mindful of a verse in the Bible that says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And his beautiful, blistered, bloody feet brought the good news of Jesus and completed what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for them so that they saw it better than they would have ever seen it otherwise. Another story told in a magazine called Virtue, a women's magazine, 1991, true story told by a man named Michael Card. He told the story of a Maasai warrior named Joseph, a simple man who came to faith. An evangelist told him about Jesus and the gospel. He believed and he purposed in himself that he had to go back and tell his whole village, all the people that he knew, about this Jesus. And so he went and he told them the gospel because he was so excited and so amazed and was amazed that rather than being heralded and received and rejoiced in, they completely rejected what he had to say. In fact, not only that, the men held him down while women took strands of barbed wire and beat him mercilessly within an inch of his life. They threw him out of the village so that now unconscious, two or three days later, he regained consciousness, found a watering hole, somehow came back to his strength. He thought to himself, because he's a simple man, I must have said it wrong. I must have said it wrong because why on earth would people not receive forgiveness and resurrection and eternal life in Jesus? And so he rehearsed in his mind his important message to not get it wrong, and he went back. And when he went back, they received him the exact same way. The men held him down while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire, reopening the very wounds that had just begun to heal. Blacked out, unconscious, found himself outside the village. The article said if the first time he regained consciousness was quite extraordinary, the second time it was almost miraculous. And he determined to go back. And he went back a third time. And he got the same exact reception. Except for one difference. He said that before he blacked out, he noticed that this time the women were starting to cry and began to weep. And when he regained consciousness, he found himself in his own cot as the very ones who had tried to kill him were now trying with all their might to keep him alive. 
and the whole village came to faith in Christ. That's Colossians 1.24. That is filling up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ and presenting to a world the afflictions of Christ even through our own afflictions, even through our own suffering, even through our own inconveniences, even through our own sacrifices. This is what Christian mission and ministry is. And you've been called to it, and you know the content of it, and now you and I need to be ready to bear the cost of it. I think of that. Some I wrote, hear me. Some of you should literally go. Go to the ends of the earth. And if you go, but I got children, the idea that we don't go to hard places is not a biblical one. Some of us should go. And if we hear, I'm not saying this to feel bad that God put us in America. He put us in America. But you and I should be ready, whatever it might be, the sacrifices and inconveniences, the sufferings and afflictions that may come so that our world may might know the afflictions of Christ even through our sacrifices and inconveniences. My prayer for us, for me, is that even now we would be worthy of this word. We wouldn't just hear it. We'd be worthy of it. And in whatever context and ways God calls us to live it out, we would live it out. That we are not called to some safe, tame, picket fence, middle class, American dream Christianity. We have been called to take up our cross and follow him, come what may. And we have been called to this mission by God's grace. We have been given the content which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. May God make us ready for the cost of it as well. That we live such weird biblical lives that don't make sense except if there is a resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are humbled underneath your word. And we just ask for the grace and faith to trust in you now. We ask, O oh Lord, that the Spirit would stir in us and prompt us in a way that only he can, for he knows us. We pray, Spirit, if you're calling any of us to anything, that we would be open to your call, that we would have ears to hear it. We pray, O oh Lord, with small and weak faith that we would hug the afflicted feet of Christ and put our trust in him, that whatever you have for us, we would trust it's not senseless, it has purpose, and you intend to use these very things as the means by which you intend to communicate your wonderful gospel to the world. Come do more than we know to ask. Take different parts of your word and apply it to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.